That's just the way it happens, I guess. John chapter 7. Throughout this whole chapter, we have seen Jesus now in Jerusalem once again during the Feast of Tabernacles going to the temple and preaching and once again the words of Jesus stirring the antagonism of the religious leaders by the things that he said and as we enter into this short chapter or this short passage in the chapter After the major question that we saw last time, who is Jesus? Now the religious leaders are concerned even more greatly because the people are beginning to say this could be the Messiah. And this would be the last thing that they would want the people to believe. For indeed they didn't believe it themselves. From the beginning, Jesus said, you know, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem with you, speaking to his brothers. He says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll catch up with you. I'll get there. But he came stealthily because of this very reason that they sought to kill him. And it wasn't out of fear that Jesus did this. It was because his time was not yet come. With that in mind, we want to begin reading in verse 30 of, our, of, of uh, John chapter 7. And then they sought to take him. But no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him and said, when, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man has done? And uh, What they were saying was, listen, if, if there is another Messiah, is he going to do what this guy's already done? In other words, this has to be Messiah. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. And then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You, you shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am, thither you cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go that we shall not find him? In other words, where is he going to go that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said, You shall seek me and, not, and shall not find me, and, and where I am, thither you cannot come. There you cannot be, or there you cannot come. What manner of saying is this? Antagonism continued to build against Jesus, and some people would ask why. Why, with the message that he preached about the kingdom of God, why, with the things that he did when he healed the sick and raised the dead, opened blind eyes, made, made uh, uh, dumb tongues speak, 
Why would an antagonism build against Jesus? Well, many may not have forgotten that Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple courtyard a couple of years earlier. And soon after, the religious leaders kept their eyes on him and their ears open to things that he preached. They began to scrutinize him and follow him and, and want to hear every little thing that he was saying to see if they could catch him in something. Looking back to John chapter 5, as we have over the past few weeks, <clears throat> after healing a layman on the Sabbath, we see that antagonism growing. John 5, 16, for, for instance, it says, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. What did he, what did he do? He healed a man. He helped someone. He gave a blessing to a man. But they were ready to kill him and, 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 and claim blasphemy for healing on the Sabbath. They had no, no idea whatsoever God's position on his Sabbath. The resentment and the bitterness would build over the many things that Jesus would say concerning his Father and that he came from heaven sent by his Father to be the bread of life. That he had the power to give life and to give it eternally. And if anyone would take him in completely as eating him as bread and drinking his blood and believe in him, they would live forever. These were the things that Jesus was saying. But what was the result? John 1, uh, 7 verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, which means he wasn't going to walk among the, 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 the Jews in Judea in Jerusalem because the Jews sought to kill him. Not just whenever. Because he would then go and be among them. But nonetheless, what I point out in this particular verse is the growing antagonism. Now, in, at where we are in the text, Jesus was six months from the cross. Six months from the cross. And as we read in verses 30 to 32, the religious leaders sought to take him again. But no one laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. The hour of his death. But it was the religious leaders' concern over the debate in verse 31 that the people were having and trying to determine who Jesus was, even to the extent that some were inclined to believe in him, and that brought an even greater antagonism by the religious leaders as we read in verse 32 the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him and the, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him but this short passage that we're studying today we can actually subtitle this a warning to the unbeliever a warning to the unbeliever in this case those who have a shallow faith a shallow faith a false faith or a temporary faith that is not founded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. The title of this message, The Looming Danger of Jesus, is not so much speaking to the impending dangers that Jesus would be facing from now to the cross. It wasn't about the dangers he was going to face. He knew those dangers were going to come. He expected those dangers to come. But in fact, 
this particular title, The Looming Danger of Jesus, actually speaks of the approaching forthcoming dangers to those who would reject Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and ultimately reject the Son of God, who is God the Son. There's a greater danger for those who reject than whatever dangers Jesus himself was going to face. Remember this. Jesus knew he was coming to die. Jesus came with that intention. So Jesus was well aware of all that was going on. He, he had come for this reason, to give his life a ransom for many. No formal attempt to take him by force would materialize. The fact that the Pharisees and the chief priests were joining forces is significant because they were among the Jewish people two opposing religious and political forces. The chief priests were at this time taken from the ranks of the most wealthy and influential priestly families from which the high priest was selected. They were the backbone of the group called the Sadducees. The majority aristocratic party in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin being the council of 70. Their theological position is given to us actually in Acts chapter 23. And I, and I find this to be a very important understanding for us. To see what is happening in the building up of this antagonism toward Jesus. In Acts 23 verse 6 we're told but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, notice the distinction between Sadducees and Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. He was of the group that truly believed in the word of God, in the word of the Tanakh, and, and, and believed as, as the Pharisees of old that had begun about 200 years before the birth of Christ on this earth. To maintain the, the trust in, in, in the full law and the prophets. They would, of course, later on kind of weaken themselves through their hypocrisies. But nonetheless, the Pharisees were those who believed. And he says, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee of the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am called in question. He says, you're, you're questioning my belief in this, this resurrection business. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. Paul was kind of using this argument between them to state his position, protect himself. In verse 8, he says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So what we find in this, this particular case is that the Sadducees were those who were the liberals of the Jewish people. They were the ones who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were the ones who did not believe in uh, supernatural things. Although the Bible speaks of supernatural things all the time. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And now you wonder why they're called Sadducees. Well, that's because they were sad, you see. <laughs> they didn't believe the truth. That always works. I like that thing. But in our text, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were somewhat enemies, seem to have closed their ranks. 
the enemy of our enemies <laughs> now make us friends. And both parties being threatened by this unwanted Messiah. And so they sent officers. Truly, there was a group called the Temple Police. They were, the, they were from the Levites who were responsible for maintaining law and order within the precincts of the temple to take him, to take Jesus. We're not told when these officers arrived, but obviously the Lord was not disturbed. His times were in his father's hands, and so he went on teaching there in the temple, knowing that they were either on their way or they were there already, and they were able to hear what Jesus had to say. And, and he spoke of his duration on the earth in verse 33 of our text. It says, Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Now again, he's speaking to the Jews in the temple. Not so much directed to his disciples. No, to the Jews in the temple. That's a very important distinction. Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am, thither you cannot come. Folks, what, what he's saying was something that really uh, kind of uh, threw a, a wrench in the works of their understanding of the word, because how often would they read in their own scriptures that the, the scripture would say, if you seek me, you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. But then Jesus says, you shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am, there you cannot come. The fact that his time on earth was short, six months, was based not only on his spiritual intuition and omniscience. It was something that a diligent student of the Hebrew Scriptures could actually figure out for themselves. As I mentioned before, if they had paid attention to those scriptures, they would have known that Jesus fit the prophecies of Messiah, where he was born, to whom he was born. In this particular case, the prophecies would speak of him coming to the earth for a certain amount of time and then being cut off. So it was something that a diligent student of the Hebrew Scriptures could figure out for themselves, especially by looking at Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks of years. Uh, Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. In that prophecy, we are told that Messiah would be cut off after the interval of 69 weeks of years. Now, 70 weeks of years is 490 years. But if you then go to 69 weeks of years, that would mean 483 years. It would be 483 years from the date of the decree of Artaxerxes in the 20th year of his reign, which was in 445 B.C., allowing Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild it and its walls, which you can read in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. But this computation itself is not so simple for us in our time because we have to deal not only with a lunar calendar, but with a solar calendar, with the different calendars that there were in, in, in Jesus' time and, and before and in our time today. So it does take a little bit longer to, to make these computations, but thanks to men like Sir Robert Anderson, who wrote The Coming Prince, and in that, uh, in that book, he, he, uh, he painstakingly w worked on this whole uh, issue of, of computing this 
uh, out and uh, dealing, uh, dig, digging deeply into the Hebrew scriptures, the lunar and solar calendars, uh, we, we can have an approximate date actually for the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and his subsequent death on the cross. But for Jesus, the exact date would all, was already known. And as he foretold his destiny to the Jews who were listening to him, he was foretelling his death. He was foretelling his death when he said, yet a little while am I with you. He's not saying, listen, I'm going to be with you a little bit while, then I'm going to get on, you know, uh, get on the next train and I'm going to head out and go someplace else. No, he was talking about, I'm going to only be here a little, bit, a, a little while because I came to die. So the reply was to both, or I should say was to be both puzzling and tragic to the unbeliever of his day, as it is striking and tragic to the unbeliever of today. For obviously both not knowing the eternal consequences of these words. Not knowing the consequences of Jesus saying, I will only be with you a short time. But with essentially the same words, with essentially the same words, Jesus gave the same warning to his disciples. But I want you to notice the difference. If you look at John 13, verse 33, and we're going a little bit ahead here in, in John. John 13, verse 33. I want you to notice the difference. It's, it's primarily the same, basically the same words, but, but how he begins shows us the nature of his presentation. He says to them, little children, he didn't say that to those in, in the temple, but to his own. He said, little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, you see, where I'm going, you can't come. I'm going to die. It's my time now, not yours. There, to me, in, in reading this, is a much gentler heart and sensitive heart to his own people, to his disciples. And then in, ch in chapter 14, verse 28, he says to them, You have heard how I said unto you. And remember now, he's alone with his disciples. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father. For my Father is greater than I. Jesus again stating very clearly, he came to obey his Father. He, he came voluntarily to give his life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He said you would rejoice if you understood where I have to go. If you understood the cross. But he was quite aware that they would not understand until after his resurrection. As we pointed out, by the way, last week. My father is greater than I. 
in the sense that he humbled himself to take upon himself flesh to do what we needed him to do for us. But then later on, the more he moves toward the cross, listen in John 16, verse 5. He says, but now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? Where are you going? None of you ask. It was becoming harder and harder for them. It was, you know, the anxiety of all that was being said was weighing more and more heavy upon their own hearts. So Jesus was also foretelling not only his, his, his death, but his resurrection and ascension as well, because in the same verse, he said, and then I go unto him that sent me. So I'm going, in, in short, I'll be only short time with you, and I'm going. But then he says, and then I go unto him that sent me. I'm going to him. And, and he says it in such a way that he's going alive. <laughs> he's going to go alive. To his father. Consider that in this one whole phrase in verse 33. Yet a little while when I'm with you and then I go unto him that sent me. In this one verse and in this one phrase Jesus was in a word staring at the cross. Succumbing and submitting and surrendering to the sufferings he was shortly going to endure. With a sadness in his words. The time is near. And yet, and yet he expressed success. The success being, I go to him that sent me. That's the success. I go to him that sent me. Which means he's going to conquer sin and death. On the cross, in death, and in rising from the dead. And while his words to the Jews in the temple were in effect a warning to them, to his disciples, they were certainly words of hope and eventual triumph. We're going back to John chapter 14 for just a moment, one of the, my favorite passages of Scripture in verses 1 through 3, where, he, where Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I have to tell you, when I, I, I've read this thousands of times, and then I thought, my goodness, what a Jewish thing to say. What a blessedly Jewish thing to say. <laughs> you believe in God. You believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You believe in the one true and living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. But what did he say to those in the temple? You're not, you don't know where I'm going. The difference between faith and unbelief. And 
And what strikes me more than anything in this passage, along with the passage in, that we're studying in John 7, is that Jesus is coming to deliver troubled hearts. Jesus is coming to deliver troubled hearts. He's saying to them, don't let go of this promise. I'm coming. Don't let your heart be troubled. I'm coming. And he's come. Whether by death or resurrection or even rapture. But he's coming. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in my promise to you. And so here's the question. What did death and resurrection have to do with those who were opposed to Jesus? Why did he predict his destiny in answering those who wanted nothing to do with him? There's a couple of simple answers. One simple answer would be that he said these things as a warning to awaken some of them to truly believe in him and to say, you know, it's time for us to get serious about this. Another simple answer would be is to tell them, well, now you can get rid of me. Now you can get rid of me. They, they could reject and have nothing to do with him. Now that he's made it clear to them. He would, in fact, go away. I am going to go away. That's what you've wanted. But, however, he would not cease to be. He would not be annihilated. His life would not be extinguished. Because this was their intent. To kill Jesus. To get him out of the way. Completely and totally. Isn't that what death does? They're no longer here. See if he just goes away. He can always come back. But they didn't figure that about Jesus, that he could go away and then come back. Or that he would go away and fill all of his people who believed in him with him and with himself in his spirit, and, the, and he'd never go away. Many people today are saying very similar things that these religious leaders were saying and wanting to do. Jesus, just go away. Much of the world is saying that today. Even in our own country. Jesus, just go away. I even read something yesterday that some, you know, some statement that Hillary Clinton made, you know, that this is... Something that, you know, people who really believe in the Bible, you know, they need to put those things away. Really? Wow. Be careful about her. And others on both sides of the aisle. Jesus, just go away. You're cramping my lifestyle. 
You're hampering my course and my direction. Just go away. I have to tell him, sorry, he's not going to. You see, Jesus would be killed because men would try to stop him from living as a man on earth. But he would arise and return to his Father who sent him. He would experience glory and offer great hope to all those who have believed and do believe in him. Because they carry the promise of the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ. They carry the hope that he's going to come again. In fact, if you will, go to the end of Mark chapter 16, the Gospel of Mark chapter 16. Now some of you may have translations that may have on the margins a little passage that says verses 9 through 20 are, are, are not found in, uh, in, in, in most of the older manuscripts, I believe in Sinaiticus and a couple of, and another one. And I'm thinking, you know, well, you know what, it's in my Bible. So I'm not going to worry. I think it's there because it's there because it needs to be. You can argue as to whether why it shouldn't be or why it should be. As far as I'm concerned, King James uh, uh, translators believed it to be there and needed to be there and is there because they were in, a, in the manuscripts that they used, and that's what we need to stand upon. Okay, enough said. We'll, we'll talk about that another time. Mark 16, verses 19 and 20. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Oh, there it is. That's what I just read. Let's look at verse 20. And they went forth and preached everywhere. Those who were his disciples, they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. And of course they went unto the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, then of course it's implied here that they would eventually receive the Holy Spirit at, at Pentecost and so on. Verse 34 of our text, going back now to verse 34 as we need to move on here quickly. Jesus foretold the destiny of man. Verse 34. It says, you shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am, thither you cannot come. What Jesus meant is just what he said. The, the person who rejects Jesus Christ will face the day when he will seek Christ, but it will be too late. We need, we need to understand that from the scriptures. The people who reject Christ will face the day when they will see Christ, and yet it will be too late. What, what do I mean? Well, we're told that in this life, as the Lord puts it, that the Spirit shall not always strive with man. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. And the Lord said, My Spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Of course, that was way back then, before the flood. But nonetheless, compare that with another verse of Scripture in Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29 verse 1 says this, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Now how do we compare these two particular verses of Scripture? Let, let, me, do it, let, let me put it this way. How many people have felt the pull, as it were, the pull to make a decision after hearing the gospel, but, the, but, they, uh, but put the decision off, let's say for an hour or maybe two hours or, 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 or then eventually longer, and then that pull fades and finally dies completely? God pursues man. 
God pursues man through the power of his spirit. God, you know, and, and, and people will hear, people will go to church, they'll hear the gospel for the first time, and then they, they say, you know, they think about it, they, you know, so there's that pull. Eventually, it kind of just dies off. The world becomes a greater desire. Then the pull's no longer there. The pull could be there a long time, but then the pull's no longer there. And then you realize God's Spirit does not continue to strive with us. And men walk away. Happens every day. But listen, we would want the Lord, we as believers would want the Lord to continue to strive with us. We want the Lord to continue to strive with us through His Spirit. There's one great example, and that is David. David the king who committed a, a tremendous sin before the Lord. And Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are those great verses or, or psalms that, that speak of, 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 of seeking the in repentance, you know, the forgiveness of God and knowing that God is a, forgive, a forgiving God. But here in Psalm 51, if you will, verses 10 and 11, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Renew, Lord. Only God is the one who can renew a right spirit in any of us after a fall, after a struggle. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. But look at verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. What is he saying? God, don't stop striving with me. I need you. You see, God didn't put us out to pasture when we fall. This is why the conviction of the Holy Spirit is so Necessary for us to understand as believers in Jesus Christ. But it's sadly interesting to me that the unbeliever at the day of judgment will see Christ. Most of us think they won't, but folks, the scriptures tell us they do. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, when he was talking about building a foundation either upon sand or upon stone or upon a, a solid foundation. After this, but, but, but listen to what he says in verse 21. He says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now look closely at verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. The day of what? The day of judgment. Many of them will say to me, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in, in thy name done many wonderful works. May I ask you a question? Do you think that someone standing before the Lord at judgment day would lie to God? No. That's what makes this even more chilling. Because there are people today and have been actually, you know, for the length of the 
life of the church, there have been so many charlatans, so many people. We see them on TV all the time. Doing all manner of things and preaching all manner of apostasies and whatnot. Yet, in, the, in their own minds, you know, they've, they've prophesied in the name of the Lord. They've even used the name of the Lord to cast out demons. And, and it doesn't always happen the way they think. But I can say this, you know, in one of these major healing services, sometimes people do get healed. But is it because of the preacher or is it because of God? In spite of the preacher, God will heal. So understand, they're doing these things. They cast out the you know, uh, devils in his name, and in thy wonderful name, many wonder, wonderful works while lining their pockets. And the response of Jesus, and then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. painful to hear. Matthew 25, in the, in the parable of the ten virgins, the, the picture of, of those who were to be ready at the coming of the, of the bridegroom. And five of the virgins who were the attendants of the bride, five of them were ready. They had their oil, their oil lamps full, while the others did not. And the others were saying to the ones that had oil, give us some of your oil. He said, well, you can't do that. I, I can't. You have to go get your own. Because then we won't have enough. And every person, we, see, we don't get into heaven on somebody else's ticket. So you got to go get your own. So listen to this in verses 10 through 13 of Matthew 25. While they, were, while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. I mean, that was it, man. The door shut. No handle on the outside. And afterward came also the other virgins saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Sound familiar? Lord, Lord. They're seeking the Lord. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Now notice what he says in verse 13. This is, this is the... Warning, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. You have to be ready and you have to be filled with what you need when he comes. The great tragedy is that the unbeliever will not find Christ. The unbeliever has never known Christ, nor what it is to walk in the Lord's kingdom on earth, and therefore he will not know Jesus or his kingdom in that day. As, as Christ and heaven are alien and unknown to the unbeliever, so will Christ and heaven be alien and unknown to the believer in, this, in that day of judgment. They will not come where he is, which is what Jesus said. In God the Father's presence, and they will not come to be with him eternally. He said, where I am, where I am, there you cannot come. You cannot come. There are many verses here that I want to give you, but I think that this is, uh, two of these are, are sufficient to get an understanding. We're, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, 
Now this I say, Paul says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom, and neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Revelation 21, verse 27 says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, may I say to you, did not save themselves. They don't save themselves. We didn't save ourselves. What happened to us was the light of God's word was shown upon our hearts, revealing what our hearts look like. And we saw the ugliness of sin and wickedness in us. Received at, the, at our birth because it was upon every man after the fall. And then Jesus came and we believed. Because we cried out for mercy. And we were told, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead, you shall be saved. So what was the reaction of the rulers and the authorities to Jesus' statement? Or statements? Simply, they were puzzled and they questioned. They questioned what Jesus meant because in verses 35 and 36, our last two verses here, then said the Jews among themselves, whither will he go that we shall not find him? Where's he going that we're not going to find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? And then they said, what manner of saying is this that he said? You shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am, there you cannot come. Well, what manner of speaking is this? Because, hey, we've read, if we seek him, he'll find, we'll find him. You remember their intentions, though? They were seeking him to do what? <laughs> so from this text, these people supposed rather scornfully that he was talking about going to the diaspora in other lands. In other words, the dispersed, meaning the Jews who went out into other lands... That Jesus was actually going to go either to them, while others proposed that he was actually taking his mission to the Gentiles himself, which is anathema. I mean, it's blasphemy to go to the Gentiles. They weren't sure what this strange prophet was going to do next, but going to the Gentiles, to, these, uh, you know, to those Jewish leaders, going to the Gentiles was the last straw. This was another reason for the greater antagonism against Jesus. Because to them it was all other, utter nonsense. But, but they did not have what we have today. What do we have today? We have the New Testament record of the things that Jesus Christ not only did, but what he accomplished by way of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. We know about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We know about the acts of the apostles as they in the boldness given to them through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit preached the good news of Jesus to the entire known world until it finally, finally, finally reached us. And shouldn't we give thanks to God for that? The looming danger was not to fall upon the Messiah. For indeed he came for just that very reason. To give his life as the Lamb of God. 
the looming, impending danger would fall on those who would ultimately reject the truth that Jesus Christ is Savior, that He is the Redeemer, that He is the bread of life, that He is the Good Shepherd, that He is the life giver, the deliverer, the great I am, and the Lord and Master of all. I would hope and pray that none of us have rejected any of those things that Christ is to those who believe. We come to the table of communion now. We're going to be a little late. Don't worry. I'm more concerned about the next service. We're, we're okay. As we come to this table of communion, please understand that this is the time for us to ask those questions about who Jesus is and the importance of believing and trusting everything He has said and everything that He has done. Father, thank You for bringing us to this table today. With what we have learned, I pray that it will encourage our hearts to take hold of your truth, not only today, but every day. To be filled, Lord, with your spirit and to let your word seep deeply into our hearts and our lives, lived out, Lord God, by every step that we take in faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So as we take hold of these elements and hold on to them to partake of them together, we pray that you grant us your light and understanding in Jesus' name. Amen.